Turn, if you would, to the 13th chapter of the book of Matthew. It's been an uh, emotional week around my house. Uh, we had a wedding last night. This is all my family and my children and their spouses and one grandson over there. Uh, I can give you a family history, but we'll do that later. So we had a wonderful service last night for that. Uh, unfortunately, as I said, it's been a very emotional week. On Thursday night, my father-in-law, Teresa's dad, had a heart attack. So he has been in the ICU since then, uh, actually unconscious. So we're continuing to pray for his healing. Uh, so Teresa was going back and forth between wedding emotions and those emotions. So. It's been an interesting week at our house. All the kids were in. Um, when we were told that my father-in-law was at the hospital, uh, 22 of us went down to the hospital. The, the lady came into the waiting room and says, y'all can go see him now. And then she said, but not all of you. <laughs> we're continuing to work our way through the book of Matthew. We started chapter 13 where he begins teaching to the people in parables. In the middle of chapter 13, he has a discussion about why he's talking in parables. The disciples came to him and said, you know, you go back just a few chapters and you had these wonderful sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, where he talked very plainly and now he's talking in parables. And they said, why are you doing that? And he had a very interesting discussion that he was doing it so that they would understand the secrets of the kingdom what life was going to be like after he was gone and before he returned. But the second reason was so that you would understand, but so that they, the unbelieving, those with hardened hearts, would not understand the truths of the kingdom. The first parable he presented was the one about the four soils. You know, the guy was out throwing the seed and some fell on the hard ground. Some fell on the shallow ground, some fell on the ground that was covered in thorns, and some fell in good soil and was very productive. And what we saw in that was a picture of the different kinds of hearts that receive and hear the gospel. Some hearts are hard. They hear it, but they don't ever respond to it. Some are very shallow. They hear it, they go, ooh, that's great, I want some of that. But as soon as life gets tough, they're gone. They don't want anything to do with it. They have no roots. Some hearts, it begins to grow, but the worries and cares of this world just choke the life out of it. And some hearts hear the gospel and are uh, receptive to it, and they are productive and they produce good fruit. So we had that parable. Last week we had yet more parables talking about, I don't know, the mustard seed and the yeast, about how the kingdom of heaven permeates everything that we touch with the gospel. So we're going to try to finish out this chapter today, but you know how that goes. Sometimes I make it and sometimes I don't. Picking up in verse 44, most of these parables, not all, but most of them, begin the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like. He's teaching us something about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Hmm. We are given no explanation for this one. Let's read the next one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. We have two very similar parables, neither one of which uh, have an explanation given. So we're going to try to figure out what they mean. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds a treasure. It's in a field, he leaves it in the field, he goes and he sells everything that he has in order to purchase that field. So, what do you think this is talking about? The kingdom of heaven, 
the kingdom that has Jesus as the king here and now in this world. Those of us who acknowledge Jesus as the king of kings, we are the kingdom of heaven. How much is that worth? What is that worth to us? What value do we place on the kingdom of heaven? You know, we had a wedding yesterday. I can place a certain value on that because I wrote a bunch of checks. (laughs) I've got one more to go. We'll get it done. Generally, you and I associate value with how much does something cost? What is the value of the kingdom of heaven? What is it worth to be in the kingdom? That's what these two parables are about. A man went and sold what? A little bit? He sold everything that he had in order to get the treasure. Now, we're going to look at this from two different perspectives. I told you, we don't have an explanation of this, right? So I'm going to let you have two different perspectives. Who is it that's buying the field? Take a guess. A believer? Take another guess. Jesus. You just said that because you thought that was the right answer, right? You've heard the old joke. I've told it to you before. The little kid in you know, the elementary school class, and the teacher says, what has a bushy tail, collects nuts, and climbs a tree? And this little kid says, well, I know the answer is Jesus, but it certainly sounds like a squirrel. Jesus is always the answer, right? No, that's actually a good answer. And the other answer is a good answer. One perspective of it is Jesus placing such value on us that he gives his life to obtain us. Because we know that Jesus Christ is is the source of our salvation. We remember that because when we're going to talk about the other explanation, which, by the way, is the one I like the best, number two, not number one, when we talk about the other one, we talk about us placing such great value on the kingdom that we sell, we are willing to give up everything that we have to pursue it. Some people think, oh, you're buying your way into the kingdom. Nobody's buying their way into the kingdom. You know, you don't show up to heaven with your checkbook and say, how many zeros do I have to put on this before you'll let me into the kingdom? That's not going to work. First off, you don't have enough zeros. Or maybe that's all you have. There's there's nothing in front of it. Jesus saw value in us, thus He saved us. That is one possible interpretation. I believe the purpose of this parable is to teach us the value of being in the kingdom. It is interesting because we, rightfully so, spend a lot of our time talking about grace, and we should. How are we saved? purely by the grace of God, sending his son to die for our sins. But we begin to think that if it's free, it has no value. If it doesn't cost us anything, it has no value. So it's just like, oh yeah, I became a Christian back there somewhere. It's kind of boring, but I did it. And it doesn't excite us because we didn't pay for it. And what did I say a while ago? We, particularly as 21st century Americans, equate value with how much money I spent on it. But in light of eternity, how much money you spent on it is irrelevant for true value. 
We could almost make the case, not quite, almost make the case that there is an inverse relationship between dollar amounts and true eternal value. Let me tell you true eternal value. There was a picture of my family. That's value. The fact that my family responds to the crisis of the week, that's value. So, what does this tell us about the kingdom? The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure. Let's just stop right there. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure. What is the kingdom of heaven? What does it mean to be a believer? It is a treasure. It is of great value. Do we believe that? Do we believe that the kingdom of heaven is the most valuable thing in existence for us as human beings? Or is it something that we tack onto our lives in our spare time? Go ahead. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. He, he, he asked a friend to loan him some money to fix his car, and the guy said, your car's a pile of junk. That's a loose translation. <laughs> so the friend gave him a new car. <laughs> that's, that's an improvement, right? Do we acknowledge the fact that the kingdom of heaven is, is the greatest value that we can pursue in this life? Now, how did the man demonstrate that he understood the value of the treasure in the field? It says he went and sold everything that he had in order to obtain it. Now, this is interesting because this does begin to walk through that narrow path of, oh, am I working to obtain my salvation in the fact that God is going to reward me just because I gave up everything that I had? You remember The rich young ruler, that's the title, okay, at least of the paragraph. The rich young ruler shows up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, obey the commandments. And he rattles off a couple of them. And the young man says, I've done that. And you know, to his credit, I'm going to say, at least from an external perspective, he probably had. He was probably a good man by our standards. And then Jesus looked at him and said, sell everything that you have, give to the poor, and come and follow me. And the guy said, oh shoot. Loose translation. And he walked away. And it says, because he was very wealthy. Now, is Jesus telling us today to sell everything you have and give to the poor? Probably not. What Jesus knew was the condition of that man's heart, and he knew that that bank account was what that heart was focused on. And Jesus went to the heart of the matter and said, that needs to go. Because the position that that money occupies is the position that I want to occupy. And that is the center 
of your heart. Now, most people, when we talk about the rich young ruler, and then I let you off the hook by telling you you don't have to sell everything and give to the poor, most people go, life is good. But you need to remember that whatever it is that, at, that is at the center of your heart, it can be money. It can be influence. It can be just having an easy life. I've told you before, Francis Schaeffer used to say that modern Westerners, us, have two values that they seek after, personal peace and affluence. Affluence, I want a lot of stuff, personal peace, I want to be left alone to enjoy my stuff. Leave me alone. Those are things that occupy our heart. And Jesus says, I want to take that position. The man found a treasure in a field and he sold everything that he had. What does it cost to follow Jesus. There's two answers to this. One answer is nothing, and that's a right answer. The other answer is everything, and that's a right answer. What does it cost to get the salvation? Nothing. Why? because we are beggars with no resources to get us into heaven. What does it cost to truly follow Jesus? All of your mind, will, and emotions, your heart, the center of who you are. And the question is, how does this man in this parable demonstrate that? He sells everything that he has. Now, I'm going around in circles on purpose. Does this mean we need to sell everything that we have? No. It means we need to give everything that we are to God. You see, between the what does it take to be saved nothing answer, and what does it take to be saved? Everything answer. Between those two is where most of us exist. I'll give God some. I'll give God a piece. I'll give God one day a week. 14% of my time I'll give to God because I'll show up to church on Sunday, and God will really think I'm special because I showed up to church on Sunday. Woohoo! What does God want from you? He wants you to sell your all. There's your heart. There's something at the middle of it. He wants that to be him. Anything other than that is... You know the word, idolatry. You know, you go back several years ago. We went through the history of Israel, right? They're in Egypt. They're brought out of Egypt. They go into the promised land. Life is great. Between there and there, and it was idolatry, you know? Moses would go up to talk to God, and the people would make a golden calf. And we look at that, and we go, how stupid can you possibly be? They just have different idols. Whatever is at the center of your heart, whatever it is that you place most value on, is what you worship. And Jesus says that needs to be God. But to me it's interesting. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his three-letter word, joy. You see, I can sit up here and I can badger you into guilt over the fact that you don't give everything to God. I mean, 
I could just hellfire and brimstone you to death. But what does it say? He was badgered into selling everything that he had to go obtain the kingdom of heaven? No. He did it with joy. And to me, that's astounding. You know, there's lots of things in my life that don't bring me joy. I just have to do them. Is one of those things following Christ? Is one of those things reading my Bible? Is one of those things witnessing? Is one of those things? And I go, shoot, what's wrong? He sold everything that he had and he did it with joy. Nobody badgered him. Why did he do that? He did that because he saw the value of the treasure. Why do we not do it? Because we see the value of this world. It is interesting to contemplate if we truly understood the reality of heaven, if we truly understood the reality of the life lived for Christ, we would wonder why we were wasting our time. I mean, I had young kids once. It's Christmas time. You wrap up a nice present for them, you give them the nice present, they tear it open, and they play with the box. <laughs> they play with the box, they're distracted by the wrapping paper, they like the bow, and there's a valuable gift, and they're just distracted. The question that I have to ask, not you, but me, is what is it that hinders the joy that will drive you to give up everything not as a difficult requirement, but just as an expression of your understanding of who God is and the rewards of seeking after him. Remember from Hebrews, one of my favorite verses, so I quote it all the time, right? Without faith it is impossible to please God, for those who come to him must Number one, believe that he exists. And number two, believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. Do we truly believe? And if we truly believe, do we do it with joy? The rich young ruler left and he was sad. He was sad. He wasn't oh, you stupid kook, I'm not going to follow. He was sad because he wanted to follow after Jesus. But his heart was fixated on something else. His treasure was in the here and now. It wasn't in the kingdom of heaven. So, the question that I have for me is how do I learn to acknowledge the value of the kingdom of heaven over the things of this world. Go back to where we started. I went a little bit longer in recapping two lessons ago about the parable of the sower and the seed. Because some of the seed fell in pretty good soil, but the thorns choked it out. What were the thorns? Well, Jesus explains to us what the thorns are. They are the worries and cares of this world, and it's the belief that money can solve your problems. What is it that keeps us from having joy in the here and now? Well, your first answer is, it's when your father-in-law has a heart attack. That'll take your joy. No. That's bad. That's a horrible thing that is very difficult. But the thing that destroys your joy or the thorns 
the worries and cares of this life that slowly choke the life out of you. It isn't the bad things. They're going to happen. It's the life that is surrounded by other things that continue to distract us. Today, we need to learn more about life in the kingdom. Tomorrow, guess what? We need to learn more about life in the kingdom. Guess what? The next day, you need to learn more about the life in the kingdom. And guess what we're going to do the day after that? We're going to learn more about life in the kingdom. How do we do that? We read the Bible. The worries and cares of this world occupy our mental energy. They, act, they occupy our time. And we have to consciously say, I'm going to go learn about the treasure. Now, this is one of those universal questions, though. Which comes first, the joy or the learning? And the answer is yes. You know the answer to that question, right? You've been in this class long enough. We learn, the joy comes. We learn more, the joy comes. We learn. Now, what if the joy doesn't come? What if the joy just doesn't come? Well, I'll have to tell you the bad answer to start with. Maybe you're not the seed that fell in the ground that the thorns choked out. Maybe you're the seed that fell on the hard ground. What do we do? We repent. We confess our sins. We pray to God. But I don't want to. Hard ground. Maybe we're the shallow ground. Yeah, it sounded real good. You know, you sit in here in this nice air-conditioned room and you think, ah, this Christian life could be pretty good. And you walk outside and something bad happens to you. It doesn't even have to be really bad, just a little bad. You get a flat tire on the way home. And you go, shoot, God must not love me. <laughs> this is how we think. We laugh, but that's how we think. If there is no joy, if there is no joy, we need to look at what kind of soil we are. Because the joy should lead us to seek the kingdom more. If we ever do finish the book of Matthew, <laughs> we're going to do the book of Galatians. And the, really, the only reason I want to do the book of Galatians is because I want to talk about the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, and the other one that I always forget. But the thing to remember about the fruits of the Spirit, they're fruits, so God gives it to us, right? But we're also talk, told to work at them. We receive love, we work at loving. We received joy. We were, I mean, we're involved in this. This individual knew the value of the kingdom and he was willing to give up everything that he had and he was willing to do it joyfully. So he gives and sells all that he has and buys that field. What is the point? What is the secret of the kingdom? The secret of the kingdom is that the kingdom is valuable. It's not meant to be just an add-on to our everyday life. I've got my normal life, and today I put on a coat. That's our view of Christianity, sometimes. It's just an accessory that we add on. No, it is a thing of infinite value. Same thing on the next parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Let's just stop right there. He was looking for a pearl. He was looking for not just any pearl. He was looking for the biggest pearl, the best pearl, the highest quality pearls. 
That's what he was looking for. And one day he found the pearl. I've bought pearls once in my life for my wife. I don't know anything about pearls. This man knew about pearls. We can have an interesting theological discussion here, and I'm going to tell you what the discussion is, and then we won't have the discussion, and you'll really feel bad about it. Remember we said last week, parables are teaching a key to the kingdom. Now, you can get lost pursuing parables and making up and trying to explain it in this big picture that may not work. You know, like I always wondered, is it actually moral to bury a treasure in somebody else's field and then go by the field without telling them? But that's not the point of the parable. (laughs) The last parable, you know, I'm going to buy your field because I know there's something there that you don't know. But that's, that's pushing a parable too far, okay? This man is seeking pearls. If you go to Romans chapter whatever it is, chapter 3, it tells us pretty clearly there is no one who seeks after God. There is no one who seeks after righteousness. We are doing our own thing. So if this guy is seeking after a pearl, then is he seeking after God? Well, the answer is probably not. We talk today in churches, we talk about seekers, people who are seeking after God. Well, let me clarify this, okay? They're not seeking after God. They are seeking after the things that only God can bring. And that's a good thing, by the way, because that makes them open to the gospel. My marriage is falling apart, and I go seeking for help in putting it back together. I have a new child, and I am worried that that child is going to grow up in this world with, well, this world. And I, go to, I need to go to church because I'm seeking to have children that turn out okay. I am seeking the things of God, but I'm not necessarily seeking after God. This guy is looking for pearls. He's looking for something that will bring meaning and purpose to his life. And he finds it. And that's the fascinating thing about the gospel. You can come to this church because your marriage is messed up. You can come to this church because your life is messed up. And you hear the gospel and you realize the problem wasn't your marriage or your life. The problem was you were lost. And you needed a savior. And as soon as you do that, I would argue that your marriage might improve and your life might improve, okay? But that's the side issue. This individual was seeking after pearls and he found the best pearl that ever existed. We're not talking some rinky-dink pearl like I bought. We're talking the best pearl that ever existed. And what does he do? He sells everything that he has, and he gets that. Once again, this is not a question for you. This is a question for me. For what am I willing to sell everything that I have? For what am I willing to give all of it up? I know some of that answer. You just saw the picture, right? My family. I know that. I mean, I'll go with that. That's a good answer. We have two individuals here, the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price, all of which, both of which, were willing to sell everything that they had For the sake of the kingdom. We could have long, long discussions here. There are verses everywhere. Deny yourself. 
Give up everything. Follow after. If you're not willing to say no to your family, you're not ready to follow after Christ. Lots and lots of verses that tell us of the infinite value of the kingdom of heaven. And I believe, and I'm kind of couching this because Jesus didn't give us an explanation of these two parables. But I believe the purpose of these parables is to teach us the value of the kingdom. You see, when I make it to heaven, you won't have to convince me of the glory of heaven. Right? Why? Because I'm there. I'm in the middle of it. It's in the here and now where I have to be convinced to not chase after fill in the blank with whatever thing it is that you chase after. Personal peace, affluence, power, money, pleasure, whatever it is. All of those commercials that you will see today and tomorrow and the rest of the week trying to convince you that your life is worthless unless you drink this, drive that, or have this particular product. It's all lies. It's all lies. In light of eternity, it's all lies. Why? Because it's us chasing after something other than the kingdom of heaven. Why is Jesus telling us this parable? To convince us that in the here and now, without faith it is impossible to please God. For those who come to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek after him. Because not only is heaven itself of infinite value in the here and now it is of infinite value to be seeking after God being in the kingdom is of more value than all of these things that we spend no not we that I spend pursuing in my time and energy and thoughts. Are we willing, am I willing, to sell all to pursue that which is of infinite value? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that is thrown into the sea and gathers fish of every kind. Okay, this is easy enough. You know, you've got your fishing boat out there and you throw out your net. You have your two fishing boats and you got a net between them. You're standing on the shore and you're throwing out the net. Whatever it is, why do you do this? Because it's a great way of catching fish. So you got your boat out there and you've got this huge net out there and you're dragging, okay? Now, in a perfect world, in a perfect world, you only catch the fish you want, right? I'm out in the ocean, I'm looking for what? Tuna. And I've got this magic net. And my magic net only attracts tuna. But there is no such magic net. It grabs every fish that's in its path. That's why we have all these discussions about the poor dolphins and all this stuff, you know, getting caught in the net while you're trying to catch the tuna. Why? That's the way nets work. No surprise, everyone in the audience who was at the you know, of, of this time, who was, had the smallest amount of understanding of how fishermen work, would have understood that it's collecting all the fish. You can't, well, to the best of my knowledge, you can't create a net that only catches the fish you want. You know, they work at it to let the dolphins out, but okay, it's gonna catch the fish. When it is full, when it is full, men draw it ashore and sit down and sorted out the good into containers, but threw away the bad. Okay, I've got this net. My boat is pulling the net. I'm collecting fish. 
In my younger days, I'd go to my buddy's house up at, he had a place up at Possum Kingdom, and we'd get the net out, and we'd start scooping up fish. And we caught these little tiny things that were worthless, and we caught, I mean, it was all worthless. But that's the way the fishermen worked, right? So they gather up the fish, they drag the net on the shore, and they pick up this fish, and they go, nobody wants to eat that fish. Throw it away. They pick up another fish. That's a good fish. That fish has value. I can sell that fish. That's a good fish. It goes in this pile over here. This is a good fish. This one's no. And they start sorting them out. That's the picture. What does it mean? Well, fortunately, he gives us an explanation. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh shoot, it's another one of those. Do you remember the parable of last week? Or was it the week before? I don't remember. I've had things happen between now and then. The man goes out to the field and he plants really good seed. His enemy comes along and plants weeds in the field. And when it starts popping up, the servants come back to the master and say, didn't you plant really good seed? Yeah, I did. Why are there weeds in our field? And he immediately knows an enemy came and did this. And the servant said, should we go pluck out all the weeds right now? No, no. You'll mess it up because you won't know which is which. Wait until harvest time and then it will be evident which is which. Okay. And at harvest time, you gather all the weeds, you tie them up, and you burn them. Same picture here. What is the net? What is it grabbing? When we share the gospel, let's say you were a diehard Calvinist, okay? God predestined some people to be saved. We're not going to talk about that today. <laughs> but let's say that you were. God elected, God chose, God picked. Why do I need to go spread the gospel to anybody? Or... What I really need to do is I need to find the elect and I need to share the gospel with them so they'll be saved, I'll get the credit, life will be good. Guess what? God is not going to tell you who the elect are until he works a miracle in his life and saves them. So until then, what do we do? We take our net and we throw it as broad as we can. We share the gospel with the strangest person you can run into, and guess what? They may respond to it. They may not. They may not. Why? Some seed fell on the hard ground, some fell on the shallow ground, some fell on the... And some fell into the good soil and produced a crop. Guess what? We don't know. I can almost assure you that the people who respond to the gospel are probably not going to be the people you think are going to respond to the gospel. You go looking for people just like you. And they're all messed up, just like you. We need to spread the gospel. We need to cast the net and let everyone hear the gospel message. And guess what? Some will respond. But some won't. So the other purpose of this parable is to tell us that a fate awaits those who do not respond to the gospel. Last week we talked about this. I made the comment, and I actually had a very interesting discussion after class, because I made the comment, we don't like this whole idea of judgment. Not at all. And I had somebody come and question that, and it was actually very good, because it's like, we want judgment because we want justice to be served. 
And that's true, as long as I get to define what justice is. You know, I'll be the standard, and I'll judge you. No. We don't want God's judgment. So we read passages like this in our very tolerant, non-judgmental age, and we go, ooh, there's something bad about this. Who are you to decide what the good fish and the bad fish are? Who are you to make that decision? And the answer is, you have nothing to do with it. It does not say in this passage that at the end of the age, Christ Chapel Bible Church is going to divide the good guys from the bad guys. Why? Because we don't know. It says the angels are going to make the division. Upon what standard are the angels going to make the division? Whatever God tells them. And God is going to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. Wait a minute. Righteous? We've got to be righteous? Yeah, you do. You mean I've got to work real hard at being righteous? No. We take the righteousness of Christ, and that's how we can stand before a righteous God. What's the, perp- what's the point of this parable? In this world, there's good fish and there's bad fish. There are. Any of you deny that? In this church, there's good fish, there's bad fish. How can you tell when they're in the net? You really can't. Maybe if you looked real hard, maybe if you stared at them, maybe if you reached in the net, I don't know. Don't stretch the parable too far. But there will come a time when the judge of the universe will tell the angels, go get all the bad fish and throw them over there. We live in an age that despises the whole idea of hellfire and brimstone uh, preaching. We just don't mean, and I understand that, by the way. I do, okay? I was having a discussion, you know, this week about loud preachers, okay, who just like to yell. And, you know, my argument's always been there was a time when a preacher had to yell. They didn't have a microphone. I mean, this is simple. If you're talking to a thousand people, you have to yell or they're not going to hear you. And then when we started getting microphones and they continued to yell, eventually they just looked weird. That's just my opinion. But with that, sometimes we abandoned the reality that the hellfire and brimstone sermon is very biblical. What does it say? They're going to be cast into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is interesting in our finite earthly minds, okay? We try to picture what heaven looks like. And we think of really good food. Lots of it. No weight gain. That's what we think about, right? We talk about, think about really good friends and being there with them. And that's great. All this is great. But in our finite minds, we take heaven and we take our earthly vision and we try to, look, and I guarantee you, when you get there, you'll go, wow, I didn't expect that. But you know, All we have to work with right now is earthly language. That's all we have, is earthly language to describe heaven. Sometimes people ask, is hell really going to be burning sulfur? Is it just going to be burning continually? And one answer is yes. But another answer may be, Whatever it is, it's so bad that we use the strongest earthly language that we can concoct, and there's nothing worse than just continually burning. 
And we use that as the imagery. This is what I know for sure. Heaven is the place where God is. Hell is the place where God isn't. Now, we can have a theological discussion about God being everywhere, but at a minimum, the reality of God's presence is hidden from the people in hell. And guess what? That's what makes it hell. I don't know if when we get to heaven, there's going to be all the good food you can eat forever and you don't gain weight. Okay? I do know that when we get to heaven, the first thing we're going to ask about is not the pastries. Because God's going to be there. And when you get to, when those who get to hell, the first thing they're not going to think about is, I mean, the thing about it is not going to be, my, it's hot. What they're going to think about is, God's not here. And that's what will make it hell. We have two extremes here. The man who buys the field joyfully because it is worth everything that he has. And those who are just swimming along, awaiting judgment. This second parable, the second, third, third parable that we've covered today about the kingdom should inspire us, should drive us to share the gospel at every opportunity. Why? Because the other side is really bad. And we just can't sugarcoat it. That's just the way the scripture presents it to us. So, what is the secret of the kingdom that we cover today? The kingdom is of infinite value. Give it everything that you have. Whatever you have, okay? Nowhere does it say how much these people had. It doesn't. You may have $10 in the bank. You may have $10 million in the bank. It doesn't matter. Give it all. Remember the parable. This person was given a bunch of talents. This was given fewer talents. This one was given one talent. It didn't matter. God expected them to use what God had given them. And that's all God expected them to do. Whatever it is, recognize that the kingdom is worth all of it. Give everything that you have to God. That's the purpose. That's the principle of these parables. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us a kingdom of such value. I pray, Lord, that I, would not be obscured by the things of this world, but would sell everything to pursue you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.